Okay, welcome back, podcast listeners. We are joined today by a special guest. Trevor Pemberton is the general counsel to Governor Stitt, and he has graciously agreed to spend some time with the podcast today. I am on my own again today. This whole you know high school track is really cutting into my colleagues' time on the podcast. But an update to our listeners who listened to the last episode, little Andy has made it to the state track meet and they are running today in the preliminary rounds. And so that is where Gabe's at. And so we will fill you in on the next episode as to how all of that has turned out. So that said, we will get right to it with our guest, Trevor Pemberton. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Janet, thanks for having me. And I, I do wonder if I still had the word judge before my name, if Gabe would have shown up to this for the track meet, but I respect his decision. I mean, that's a great question. So I will pass that along and we'll see if we can't get an answer on that. <laughs> well, I'm rooting for his son. I've, I've already forgotten his name. Yeah, Little Andy is what we call him. So Gabe's dad is Andy Bass, and so his son is Little Andy. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your path to becoming general counsel to the governor? Well, if I were to begin at birth, we'd have a long story. I'm not sure that that's what you're wanting. I'll share professional kind of of my career. And then if you want more, then feel free to, to ask. So I graduated law school in 2008 from OCU School of Law and started practicing with a medical malpractice defense firm or insurance defense firm, Fallier to Half, Highway and Bottom. Was with them for all of a year and really realized that medical malpractice was not all that intriguing to me. Never was really equipped with a scientific mind and I had no desires or ability to be a doctor. And so I was not going to be a very good practitioner in that arena. So went from there to a firm that was then called Mullinex, Ogden, Hall, Andrews, and Ludlam. A couple of familiar names in there probably for Oklahoma County practitioners, Andrews and Ogden being district judges in Oklahoma County at this point. A firm of about 20 or so lawyers at that time, mostly litigators and Learned a tremendous amount from some really good and talented lawyers there. Developed a practice as a civil litigator and for a time did some family law as well. And then transitioned from there to kind of a spinoff from that firm and from there to Hayes, McGreeny, and Gatewood doing construction litigation. Mm -hmm. Anticipated uh, staying there for quite a while, not just nine months. And about eight months into it, a vacancy was created in Oklahoma County for a special judge position. And after a lot of prayer and encouragement from folks I really respected, I ultimately applied for that and was fortunate enough to be hired by the district judges in Oklahoma County. Thought, man, this job is awesome. I'll stay in this job for a long, long time. And about three months later, a district judge retired, Judge Stewart. and. Ultimately, I decided, well, I'm not going to apply for that. And the Lord, I think I'll take it as I took it as the Lord, just not accepting no. And so ultimately, with the appropriate encouragement, applied for that and went through the JNC process and was fortunate enough to get appointed by then Governor Fallon and served as a district judge for a bit on the 
civil docket, which was just a blast, and then went out to serve as chief judge of the juvenile division for a while, about a year and a half or just shy of two years, I guess. That was really meaningful time, also really emotionally taxing time as well. But some of the most meaningful work I'm sure that I will do at any point in my career. And had no aspirations to become an appellate judge, really. Certainly going out to juvenile wasn't a fast track to becoming an appellate judge. Nobody would have said that. In fact, some told me that going out to juvenile was perhaps career suicide, but I just that was never part of my calculation and is still not part of my calculation, the next thing. Mm-hmm. So served as an appellate judge to the Court of Civil Appeals for, by the way, planned to go there for a long, long time. Was sure that I would retire as a judge on the Court of Civil Appeals and was there just over a year before being asked to come serve as the governor's general counsel. And after praying through that and meeting with those that I really trust, about four weeks or five weeks maybe after the initial ask, said yes to this position. And so here I am feeling certain that this is where the Lord has called me for at least this season. I know this won't be a lifelong deal because, well, these roles just aren't by nature. So I didn't come into this one thinking I'll serve for 20 years, but just unless and until the Lord says go, then I'm here. All right. Well, that's quite the path here that you've had, especially over the last, I would say, two, three, four, five years. I think those of us who, you know, follow judicial appointments and of course practice in the appellate courts, I think it's an understatement to say we were shocked (laughs) when you decided to leave the Court of Civil Appeals, which essentially in Oklahoma can be a lifetime appointment. I mean, there's not been any judges ever not retained. So, but, you know, also the role that you're in now, I understand that that's something that, you know, is probably a once in a lifetime type deal that that doesn't come along very often. So anyway, so yes, that's all very interesting. So tell our listeners a little bit about what you do now in your role as general counsel to the governor. You know, I knew this question would be asked as a natural one to ask, and I'm still not sure that I have perfect clarity as to (laughs) to what is, but I, I, I looked back through some calendar or through my calendar over the past several weeks and even went back a couple months and the role changes or at least the responsibilities probably change depending on the day or the week and certainly they're unique given that we're in session right now and during an election year and not that I'm on the political side it's probably no anybody that that some of the issues out there or some things that become issues during election years naturally bleed into the office itself. Sure. And so we address some of those things. So I advise the governor, obviously in his capacity as governor, on a wide range of topics and issues. And, you know, as with any top elected official in the state or the nation, he occasionally in his capacity as governor gets sued. So I'm obviously involved in litigation at some level, not as the litigator, but managing litigation, address ethics concerns. And that's saying concerns is probably overstating things, but really ensuring ethical compliance within the office, with the governor, with others, play a role in reviewing bills that come through the office, reviewing for you know legality, clarity, and 
I'm certainly not here to suggest that all bills that are presented by the legislature are perfectly clear. And I see through the lens of a judge at this point. Mm -hmm. So maybe unique perspective and maybe it's dangerous to even go there. But as a judge, certainly, and this is a total sidebar, you didn't ask for this, but uh, (laughs) interesting for your podcast, maybe not. As an appellate judge, I'd like to think that I was one who certainly was my aim to read the law, apply it as it is written, and not try to impose my will in any way, shape, or form on a decision or an interpretation of the law. And so assume that what the legislature says is what they meant to say. Well, here's what I know now. Not that I didn't know it before, but it's much clearer to me at this point. They don't always mean I don't think what they say. Now, if I were still an appellate judge, I would still take the same approach that I took before because I think that's the role of the judge. But they don't always mean what they say. We're sure. Anyway, back on track, I've you know, worked with the AG's office some. I'm sure listeners are aware there have been a flurry of suits over the past several months, some related to mask mandates or vaccine mandates, really more specifically, I guess, not necessarily mask mandates, although there was some prior to my time here. And then there's this whole McGirt thing that's out there and related litigation. Just last week, the state was at the U.S. Supreme Court in the Castro Huerta case, and so have some involvement in the McGirt realm as well, involved in the judicial selection process, get to conduct the interviews, certainly the initial interviews of the applicants that are sent to the governor for consideration. And as one might imagine, he certainly relies at some level on his general counsel who played the role of a judge in helping assess who may be best suited to serve in the judiciary. Ultimately, obviously, the call is his, not mine, but I take that role extremely serious and and love participating in that process. Other appointments involved at some level, goodness, coordinate a tremendous amount with agencies, agency lawyers, agency heads, cabinet secretaries as necessary, engage with the administrative rulemaking process. The list goes on. And then just really advising the governor on anything that he seeks my counsel or wisdom to the extent that I have it on, then I play that role. I, I truly am here to, to serve him and the state, of course. So the role looks different every day and much, much different than the Court of Civil Appeals, which was, by the way, an awesome opportunity. Well, that's fascinating explanation. I can imagine that no two days are the same. So that probably keeps things interesting. I also think though that, you know, your background in, you know, being an appellate judge, specifically focusing, you know, on civil matters, and then, you know, your time on the district court bench, plus your time at the juvenile court, and your time in private practice. I mean, I think you've got a, you know, a good breadth of experience to be able to pick something up and, you know, find your bearings on it quickly, even if it's not, you know, an area of the law that you necessarily had a lot of experience in. So that was one thing that I took away from my time at with Justice Gurich was that I feel comfortable in private practice now, you know, 
picking up cases that maybe I don't necessarily focus on every day. And so I think your experience is is probably really helpful to the governor. And I can say also that I haven't noticed that maybe the legislature's bills aren't super clear. I mean, that's a new point here, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) It's interesting. So I'll be interested to see as the session comes to a close, what all new suits are filed. Let's talk a little bit more about our Oklahoma court system, state court system. That's kind of what we spend a lot of time discussing and talking about here on the podcast. And so we have a couple of what we call our stump issues that (laughs) we continue to talk about every episode. They're big ideas that need money to happen, but we always like to get our, our listeners and our guests thoughts on these issues. So, of course, you were at the district court and at the appellate court. And so you're well aware of the lack of electronic filing in state court. So give us your thoughts on electronic filing in state court. You know, are we going to have that in our careers? (laughs) Is this a pipe dream? What do you think? (laughs) Man, I sure hope so. It seems to work well in the federal, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. 2022 after all and, and not uh, 1999. Now, am I optimistic that it's going to be available in the very near future? You know, I'll be real candid. I'm, I'm not necessarily, uh, certainly not. I wouldn't imagine it happening in the next year, two years, but perhaps there are things happening in the court system that have happened in the six or seven months that I've been gone that I'm unaware of. I'm sure there are, but that should be available to practitioners. It should be available to the general public. Again, in our day and age, that shouldn't be a tall order, a big ask. I know that there are financial constraints and the electronic systems, and I'm no tech guru, but the systems that are currently in place within the court system are far behind. And so There are certain counties that participate in one system and other counties fit in another. We could really put people to sleep talking about this for too long. And so even getting alignment there, which is, I think, necessary before they move forward with electronic filing, I know was a constant topic of discussion, but not one that there's probably been a lot of movement on just yet. So, Jana, I'm with you. I hope it happens. I want it. Practitioners want it. Judges want it. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't want it, but man, they need to move that one towards the finish line or at least get it off the start line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was uplifting. I'm sure I, I probably should have instilled a little more optimism in my No, I mean, I think that's kind of where we've landed. I think if we're being realistic here, you know, the funding and the financing of this is probably the biggest impediment. So I don't know how that's solved at this point, but okay. Well, and another issue that we've, you know, of course requires funding, but we think is something that needs to be talked about. And you, you have a unique perspective, I think, because you were a judge, a district court judge in a very busy county. And then you were an appellate court judge with, I assume, two 
staff attorneys working for you. So what, if any, thoughts do you have on providing our district court judges with some help from law clerks, staff attorneys to help with them, especially in those bigger counties, work through those dockets? Yeah, so so as we mentioned, I was on a civil docket that, that was and is very busy in county, had between 1,000 and I think about 1,300 cases assigned to the docket. That's, I would assume, still the norm. Now, obviously, not all of those cases are active at, at any given time, certainly not before the judge. But, but anyway, things are busy in Oklahoma County. Most Friday mornings, the judges have motion dockets, and you've seen the stack of documents that the judges are expected to review and, and hopefully do review prior to and in anticipation of those hearings so that they can have a full and efficient and beneficial hearing on Friday mornings or Thursday mornings to mm-hmm. some judges. But anyway, I, let me start, I guess, by saying that I loved reviewing the motions and all of the filings that were filed in anticipation of a motion docket. I loved getting prepared for those. I loved interacting with the novel issues. And so that that was a lot of fun for me. Didn't really have a lot of time to draft many significant orders, right? And they drafted some and, and really enjoyed when I when I had the opportunity to do that. But because there was no help in the way of legal staff just really didn't have the bandwidth to be able to accomplish that. So I, I know that especially in large counties, Tulsa County, Oklahoma County, and I'm sure some others, that it would be helpful for a judge to have maybe a staff lawyer. And as you mentioned at the Court of Civil Appeals, I, I did have two staff attorneys and each judge and justice does have the opportunity to have two staff lawyers. As you know, sounds like you served as one, maybe for Justice Gurich. This will, you know, I, I don't know how this will be received, but but I'll say it. I probably could have used a staff lawyer more as a judge in the district court than I could have used two at the Court of Civil Appeals. Now, that said, they were tremendously helpful at the Court of Civil Appeals and awesome resources and both that I had were, were solid lawyers and did really excellent work, but the volume at the Court of Civil Appeals, now I may have been there during a unique time. I think the volume may have been down a little bit because the pandemic obviously shut courts down for a bit or at least decreased the volume of activity at the district court level. And and that then had an impact at the appellate court level as well that I think was hitting as I was getting there. And so I was told at least that the volume was down and and I have every reason to believe that was the case. So perhaps when there is a higher volume, there's an even greater need for clerks. But I would be all for some counties, some judges, some dockets having staff, lawyers, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that, that every judge in the state needs a staff lawyer. I don't think that that would be a wise use of resources. I don't think that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. But I could see in certain locations, on certain locations, on certain types of dockets, there being a need for it. But yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't go so far as to say that every judge in the state, every district judge in the state ought to have a staff lawyer. That may be an unpopular opinion, but I am one who believes that we ought to efficiently use the resources that we have. The taxpayer resources ought to be wisely utilized. And having served in the system 
for instance, I also served on a family law docket. I don't think that I, I never felt like I needed a lawyer there to help me out. I don't think that would have been a wise use of resources. While I was at the juvenile courthouse, we did have three lawyers who serve all of the judges. And I think that was really helpful for a number of reasons. But yeah, not every judge in the state needs one. So I would not be supportive of that. And hopefully I've answered your question. Maybe I've gone too far. No, you have. All views are welcome here. These again are just sort of these issues that keep popping up as we visit with judges across the state. I've heard that from local judges here on, you know, like a criminal felony docket. They don't see any reason why they would need a law clerk for a docket like that. So I think we're, you know, I do think we're narrowing at least what the need really looks like. I mean, just like you said, it's these civil dockets, these motion dockets where, you know, you're looking at a summary judgment on a case that's been litigated for, you know, two, three, four, five years. I mean, it's not a simple thing. That's, it's basically, you know, you're looking at the entire case. You're looking at the briefs that are going to go up on appeal when it gets appealed. And so it's stuff like that, of course, that, you know, it takes time. It takes research. And I think that's exactly right, that it would not be every district court judge in the state. And it would, you know, have to be something really looked at. Now, with regard to your comment about staff attorneys at the appellate level, I think that you're on to something there. I think you are probably an exception to the rule as far as appellate judges go with regard to being one that sits down with a case, starts it from the beginning to the end and drafts the opinion yourself, which might lessen the need for two law clerks. But, you know, as we move forward as newer, younger people who are more familiar with technology get appointed to our appellate court bench, you know, maybe that's something to think about as well. You know, whether resources could at least maybe be shuffled around to help provide support, professional support at all levels of the judiciary for our judges who are handling some of those more difficult dockets, more busy dockets. So, This episode is brought to you by OklahomaForms.com. Take cut and paste to the next level with hundreds of automated forms in multiple practice areas. Draft better documents faster and make your practice more efficient and profitable for only $49 per month. No long-term commitment. Cancel any time. Join hundreds of Oklahoma lawyers that have already discovered the magic of OklahomaForms.com. Go to OklahomaForms.com to sign up for a free seven-day trial. Okay, let's see here what else we have. By the way, it sounds like word got out that I wrote some of my own opinions or many of my own opinions. I mean, certainly the, the lawyers did were writing simultaneously or working on cases as I was working on one myself, or an opinion rather. That was one of the most fun parts of the job for me was sitting down, working through a case and or the briefs and then writing the opinion myself. I, I really enjoy writing. So some may not enjoy that as much and or may just see that belief that it's a better use of their time to just provide guidance to their attorneys and then edit on the back end. And I respect that. I just, one, like to stay really busy and two, really enjoyed writing and, and do miss that. 
So that was certainly part of the reason that I was drafting opinions alongside the attorneys, the staff attorneys that were working on the team, and and also tried to do my part in serving as an example for my staff lawyers that I believe we prided ourselves on both efficiency and excellence. So I didn't want to jeopardize or sacrifice the quality of the work in exchange for efficiency. I thought that both were necessary and could be accomplished. And so when I left the Court of Civil Appeals, I believe this is an accurate statement. I believe I had zero cases assigned to me at the time and maybe one uh, that had been assigned within days or a week or so of leaving. Now, had I stuck around another week, would have gotten some more assignments. We would have worked through those, and it was my goal. And and maybe the caseload, the the assignments have picked up. That that may well be the case, but it was my goal to have cases in and out the door within a matter of two or three weeks of them coming in the door at the court of civil appeals. And I thought that's a fair expectation at some level of lawyers out there. And I've been a litigator as well. I've been a district judge as well. And so I've I've been on the receiving end of these things. Again, volume may have picked up. I really don't mean to be critical of anybody else or the system, but I just felt a real burden and a duty to serve in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's some push and pull there, I think, with how long things are taking at the appellate court level, I think probably your perspective as a litigator probably played a pretty good role in that because you know what it's like to sit on this side of things <laughs> and wait and have to explain to the client why we're still waiting, you know, for a year, for two years, sometimes for sometimes even longer than that. Um, and so that part of the appellate practice for me has been difficult. Obviously, I knew when I went into private practice that things were, you know, how long they took, but it's still to be on the other end of things is hard. So, you know, I think there's the other side of that, though, is again, you know, at least with with regard to a lot of the cases that I am counsel on appeal, you know, these are cases that have been you know, in the district courts for years, you know, they've been to bench trials or jury trials, or they've been teed up on summary judgment, and they're not easy legal issues, you know, and I understand that those things take time. And I respect that, you know, the quality of the work is important. And I would rather the appellate courts spend the time that they need to make sure, you know, the quality of the decision is there. Because I know there's reason you get 60 days to write a brief in chief on a lot of these cases is because sometimes it does take you all of those 60 days to get your arguments, you know, narrowed down and craft the brief in a way that is, you know, straightforward and and puts your position fairly in front of the court. And so I have a lot of kind of mixed feelings about how long things take on appeal, but I certainly respect the idea of getting things in and getting them worked up and processed and putting all hands on deck to get things back out the door. I think practitioners for sure will be interested to hear that aspect of of how you ran your chambers. So Okay, well, let's let's talk about a couple things here as we get ready to close out. If you had a magic wand and could change anything about our Oklahoma State court system, what would it be? 
I don't think there's really a close second for me, and that's how judges are elected. We talked a little bit about it off air. You know, judges are, when they run for re-election, as you know, have to go out there and raise money. Now, when I say raise money, I mean, they don't get to make the ask, and it wouldn't be appropriate for them to make an ask. As you and I also both know, and probably the lion's share, if not all of the listeners are aware, attorneys are the ones who contribute to judicial campaigns. Now, I think one of the main reasons, hopefully, that, and I think this is right, that attorneys contribute to these campaigns is that they recognize that there are good judges that ought to stay in office. And so they want to ensure that, that the judges have the support necessary to at least give themselves the best shot at either re-election or ensuring that they don't have an opponent. So because money in the bank tends to keep opponents or potential opponents at bay. But... It does put judges in a really awkward position to have the lawyers who are practicing before them, because listen, criminal lawyers, where that's probably poorly stated, who like criminal defense lawyers, for instance, don't generally contribute to civil judges. Mm -hmm. Civil litigators don't generally contribute to criminal or judges assigned to criminal dockets. They have no reason to. They don't they don't care as much and don't have reason to care as much about what judges are assigning them. It doesn't affect them, it doesn't affect the clients. And so the individuals who are contributing to a judge's campaign are generally those lawyers who practice in front of that judge. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's much of a leak to assume that some lawyers probably contribute to those campaigns with the expectation of the hope or the belief, albeit hopefully misguided that it will somehow perhaps influence a judge's decision-making when that lawyer appears before the judge. Now, again, I think that's the exception. I don't think that's generally why lawyers contribute to judicial campaigns. But it does put both the, the lawyer and the judges in an awkward spot. Some judges truly don't maybe have any idea who contributes to their campaign. Most do. Most, most are certainly aware it's, it's publicly available information, and those judges are generally aware. So, you know, I, I, I just, I would rather judges not have to go through that process. Obviously, in the federal system, they don't. And I think that is a good aspect of the federal system, a positive one that the state court system could perhaps benefit from having. That said, perhaps it's a way to hold judges accountable in a way as well. So maybe there is some upside to it, but I think if you were to ask most judges, they would agree with me if injected with truth serum. That is not a very fun or favorable process to have to walk through. And also, I'll go a step farther, kind of along the same lines. The election of judges, of state, state court judges, at all, I don't think is necessarily best practice. Voters, generally, when it comes to judicial races, are not informed. Mm -hmm. It's not their fault. It's not as though judges are able to, or maybe even should, raise enough money to run sophisticated campaigns that would get a lot of information into the hands of the public, the voting public, nor are others interested in, and I get it, getting that information into the hands of the general public. So when folks show up to vote, 
they're generally, I think, voting based upon what they've seen on science. Whose name do I see the most? And if I saw their name the most, then, well, they must want to be a judge. More or be a better candidate to be a judge. And I, I don't think that's probably true in all instances. It may be in some, probably is, but I don't think that the election of judges who then don't have to undergo a vetting process at really any level. I don't think that's wise. I don't think it's good for the system. I, I think that judges, regardless of the system, ought to have to be vetted and undergo some scrutiny before they're able to take the bench and make decisions that ultimately have a significant impact on our society, on individual lives, on businesses, so on and so forth. So if I had a magic wand, Janet, that's what I would do. (laughs) Okay. Well, I have many follow-up questions, but I'll save those for another day. But you, I mean, you said there towards the end, I think, you know, regardless of what type of vetting system. So I assume that you know, your your preference obviously would be an appointment type process with a vetting system in place, whatever that looks like, whether it's the current system or something similar to the federal system. So, I mean, I think you're right on there. I'm not going to make any bones about how I feel about it. I think money in judicial races is dangerous, especially like you said, when it's coming from the attorneys that are practicing in front of those judges day in and day out. I think to the extent that it acts as any kind of a check or anything like that on the judges, you know, I think sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. I think, you know, you get in in these, some of these smaller counties and there's two or three attorneys that contribute to that judge's campaign. Well, you might as well not even go fire stuff out there because you're going to get hometown if one of those judges is on the other side. So, you know, and, and I don't say that being disrespectful to any one judge or anything like that. I just think I've seen it happen and I think it's concerning. And I think if that were out of the picture, sure, you see those attorneys every day as a judge and, and, you know, maybe they have more credibility than, you know, out of town attorneys or whatever. But I really think that that can play a role in it if we're not careful and we're not vetting those judges, like you say. So, okay, we will close the show out with one of our questions that we always ask our guests. And it's on a lighter note here. So any book, TV show, or movie recommendations that you have for our listeners? Well, I have a book recommendation. I'm not sure that it's on such a light note, but <laughs> a book that had a significant impact on my life is, is called Don't Waste Your Life. And John Piper is the author. And it transformed really the way that I think about career, that I think about approach to life, that I think about retirement or really not retirement. So I would recommend that. So I just, we're, we're given one shot at this deal and got to live it with purpose and a purpose far beyond ourselves. And I think that book hits it on the head. It's written from a biblical perspective and, and that's an approach that, that I take towards life. And so that'd be my recommendation. Okay, awesome. Well, we will add that to our list here for our listeners. So, Trevor, former judge, we sure appreciate you giving us some of your time today to visit with us about your current role and what you've been doing over the last few years. So, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, Janet, thanks for the opportunity. Sorry I didn't get to, I hate that I missed the opportunity to uh, chat with Gabe as well. Hopefully little Andy has at this point crossed the finish line as a state champion. That's right. That's right. (laughs) 
Okay. Thanks. Okay. Podcast listeners, stay tuned for our next episode. It should be an update on the most recent cases coming out from the Court of Civil Appeals. So watch for that episode. Until then, bye-bye. Hi, everyone. This is Gabe again. To find show notes, contact the host, and more, go to oklahomaappeals.com. Also, if you're interested in the things we cover on this show, then you should follow us on Twitter at Oklahoma Appeals, where we post court news and other items of interest for Oklahoma lawyers. Okay, Jana and I will be back with a new episode every other Wednesday. So until next time, bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by OklahomaForms.com. Take cut and paste to the next level with hundreds of automated forms in multiple practice areas. Draft better documents faster and make your practice more efficient and profitable for only $49 per month. No long-term commitment. Cancel any time. Join hundreds of Oklahoma lawyers that have already discovered the magic of OklahomaForms.com. Go to OklahomaForms.com to sign up for a free 7-day trial. 